According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Philippians 1.1 this evening. Philippians 1.1. Although questions and answers may take us elsewhere, expect they will. Not for long, she says. Not for long. You know, you reminded me um, a wedding I did for Pat Pearson Sr. And uh, Darlene, Darlene, her her uh, name was Long, right? Darlene Long. And so, yeah, when I was getting them, putting the service together, I said, now what's your middle name? She said, not for. <laughs> not for long, yeah. All right, Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including overseers and deacons. There's no the in the Greek, there is a the in the English, so we'll talk about why the appears and disappears when it does. Um, In any event, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is our salutation related to uh, that. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to bless our study and to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this evening to assemble together. We ask for your faithfulness once again, and of course, we're going to get it. You You cannot not be faithful, Father, but... Uh, We call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding and to teach us, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Father, uh, teach us what we need on this night. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, the microphone's ready to go. Uh, We do have a couple of questions and uh, we want to tackle the early ones early. All right, there we go. There's a quick hand raise there. And then I know we got some old business from uh, Ellen and then we got some other new business from Cornelius. We taught, you taught, uh, I guess it was last Sunday on Numbers 30 about the father and the husband um, being able to change a woman's um, promise that she made if it, if they. Yeah, they, they couldn't change it, but they could veto it. They could just okay. nullify it immediately by saying no. How's that still valid in New Testament? Well, as a pattern, it's not, it's not valid in terms of the fact that we're church-age believers, we're not under Mosaic law, and so uh, there, are, there are aspects of, of vowing that, in fact, in the New Testament, we're told don't even make a vow, just let your yes be yes and your no, no. Um, but just as a pattern, as it represents the fact that, that uh, marriage and family and nations, the laws of divine establishment, uh, is what God has established in Genesis and has always been normative. Uh, regardless of whether you're talking about the dispensation of Israel or the dispensation of the church or Gentiles or anything else. And so um, the principle then that uh, the fathers are the spiritual safeguards of their daughters and that uh, it's, it's a reason why we have the tradition of the father walking the, the girl down the aisle and, and, and handing her off who gives this woman to be married to this man, uh, not because women are slaves or you know chattel uh, property, uh, but there is a spiritual um, uh, handoff from the father to the husband, and that's what Numbers 30 represents. Okay, the spiritual leadership. Uh-huh. I understand that. Thanks. Yeah. Excellent question. All right, row behind you there. I was reading uh, Numbers 6, and it talks about the Nazarite vows uh-huh. and the you know, they can't have anything to do with grapes. They let their hair grow. But this is the only place where I've seen where a man or a woman can, but I've never heard of a woman Nazarite mm-hmm. in the Bible. Are there any mentioned or is it just the ones I know in, what was it, Samuel and, and of course, Samson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was surprised to see a man or a woman Right. I think uh, none particularly by name, although my suspicion is, or my uh, conclusion is, 
this is the result of Jephthah's vow that he he didn't he didn't offer his daughter as an animal sacrifice. He didn't kill her, but uh, he did dedicate her to the Lord's service, and so she was then placed under a lifelong Nazarite vow in uh, in the application there of uh, of Jeph. Are you familiar with Jephthah the judge and his foolish? He made a foolish vow that. When he comes back with a victory that the first thing out of his front door he was going to offer to the Lord, and it turned out the first thing out of his door was his daughter. And so um, I, I reject the concept of an animal, of, of a human sacrifice. It's, it's an abomination in God's sight. Uh, but to dedicate his daughter to the Lord's service, uh, that's very doable. And I think it's consistent with, with when she got together with her, her friends, the maidens, and they, they wept over her virginity. I think that's the key is that she's uh, being dedicated to the temple or to the Lord's service. There's no temple yet in the judges period, but the tabernacle. And and that under the Nazarite conditions, she's not going to have alcohol or, or marriage or some of those things there. So well, if, there there, two, if there is a female Nazarite, it would be her. There were two things about this. One yeah. is it seemed to be that it could be also for a particular length of time. Yes. And the other is <laughs> if you foul up, I can see it happening on a man. I mean, where you have to shave your head and all. Did women have to do that? I mean, can we assume that's a universal yeah. requirement for restoration? We can assume so, sure. Ooh. And and you're right. It is typically for a short term. It is typically for a short term. I think Samson is unique in the fact that because of his parents and the way he was born and raised that he was placed under that lifelong uh, expectation but i don't think in most cases was it was it supposed to be a lifelong thing yeah good question though appreciate that you also had a question a few weeks ago about the animal sacrifices in the millennium and i thought i had uh, answered that or promised to send you an article and since i obviously failed to send you an article i went to google and if you go to google and search for put in these words search for memorials shadows Animal sacrifices, millennium. All right? So if you put those five words in there, memorials, shadows, animal sacrifices, millennium, then the very first search result at the top of Google's list out of 39,900 results, um, the very first one that comes up is the Schaefer Seminary article that I published, uh, the memorials and shadow animal sacrifices of the millennium. And, uh, and so you can, you can click on that and then you'll have the PDF available. You can download it and save it and make use of it in uh, whatever form or fashion you see fit. All right, I'll repeat that. You have paper. You can also go home and listen to this MP3 file as many times as you want. Memorials, Shadows, Animal, Sacrifices, Millennium. Uh-huh. All right, so that's uh, that's the answer to that. Now, Cornelius had a question, and and, and beyond the specific question that he had, because I answered that already with respect to Ratzon, uh, a term we were looking at this morning, but it opened up a broader question that I thought would be useful for us all here tonight. Uh, anytime you're doing a, a word study, anytime you're doing your 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 chasing down rabbit trails in the in the Bible. Um, just be be aware of exactly where these trails go and what kind of trails you're on, and uh, and so we can we can take a, a passage uh, like Philippians one, we can do Greek or Hebrew, but maybe with Greek, um, it'll be slightly easier. Um, so like in uh, Philippians one three, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, all right? And so let's say you want to know, well, you know, what's the word for prayer there in uh, in verse 4? And you want to learn more about prayer, and you want to learn more about it for, for your own prayer life or whatever else. Well, it used to be there was a very long process you had to go through, and uh, you'd, you'd open up a Greek New Testament, and you would, I mean, you can still do all that, and, and I recommend that you do all that. But with the software, it's, it's a lot more streamlined, and the things are, are actually built in. But back in the old days, you had to make sure, first of all, that you were reading a King James Bible because that, the, the Strong's index was, was indexed to the King James Bible. Uh, and it may not read prayer there. I think it does, though, in this case. But anyway, so then you would read it and you would find that the word for prayer there 
underneath that text. And um, you can also turn on your interlinears. That might also be helpful if you have an interlinear. So we'll do that. All right. Just to kind of show you the things that uh, that you want to do. All right, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And so the word prayer there, right? It, it underneath that is is tain de essen, okay? And then you got an accusative singular there, and then you've got uh, underneath that the the vocabulary form, the ha de asis. See that? Is that big enough to read? The ha de asis, and it might be hard if it's colored like that. There we go. Ooh, that's too big. Stop with that. So always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And so this is kind of a nifty way to put it on an interlinear basis where you can see them lined up like that. Uh, if you want, you can, uh, you can read this middle line here, and, and, and this is as it appears in the Greek text. And so uh, that's in, fully inflected and, and, uh, and so forth. You can read the pentata poiumenos Tain de esen metakaras in mu passe de ese huper humon pantone, right? So you just read that Greek sentence across. And that's identical to if you had gone to a different book and opened it up and, and looked at your Greek New Testament there. And then the third line down, this is the, uh, these are the lemma uh, entries for each of those particular words because you're going to look up the vocabulary word by its lemma, by its lexical form. In this case, it's deesis. And you say, okay, I want to learn more about deesis. And you think, all right, this is going to go pretty quickly. This is going to go real well. And, uh, and I'm going to, so I'm going to look up deesis. And I'm going to do a word study on deesis. And uh, you're thinking, okay, this is going to go really well. All right. But then you start to realize, wait a minute, this rabbit trail is going to take me different places. <laughs> okay. Because um, deasis is used 18 times. Spot the 18 right there. It's used 18 times. And it's, it's translated as prayer, but it's translated as other things also. Uh, because translated as petition, as entreaties, as supplication. Right? 12 of the 18 times deasis shows up, it's translated as prayer. But three of those times it's translated as petition. And two times it's entreaties, and once it's supplication. In fact, here in Philippians, right? Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And you go, wow, there's a lot of different words for prayer. In fact, there's four of them right there in that one verse in Philippians 4, 6. And so you realize that uh, your word studies are a lot more involved than at first you, you think about. So... Um, yeah, you can look at the deasis in uh, Philippians 1 4, and it is used twice there. Um, but it, it, there are other words also that get translated for prayer. And, uh, and you want to know those as well. So, um, in any event, if all you're doing is searching an English Bible for prayer, you're going to miss a lot of these. You're going to miss these ones for petition or for entreaties or for supplication. That's why you want to do the search in the original as opposed to the translation so that you don't miss any of the deasis. And then I think also it's useful if, um, again, we do prayer as an English word, Bible word study. And uh, of course there's going to be Hebrew words, there's going to be Greek words. And we look at this, and here's our deesis again, which we might expect, right? Twelve uses there. Uh, that agrees with uh, what we saw here. The 12 uses there, right? But see, on, on this color wheel, deasis is, is, is translated prayer 12 out of the 18 times that deasis appears, right? But on this wheel, deasis is 12 out of 52. 52 times in the New Testament where we have the word prayer, of which the bulk of these are actually prosuke. Prosuke is 35, Okay, and you want to look up prosuke, and you want to look up prosukamai as a verb, and you want to look up entuxis, and you want to look up uh, what's this last one here? Uk, 
All right. And so these are also words that are rendered prayer. UK is there in James 5.15. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Well, that's in the Greek, it's the UK that's offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And so then, you know, we want to explore that and say, well, is a UK the same as a prosukamai? Is it the same as a entuxis? Is it the same as a, as a deesis? And what's the difference between a deesis and a prosuke? And we realize there's a whole lot more layers of complication that we have to go into. Because it's not just saying, well, what's the Greek word under this English word here? That's where you start. But then it expands beyond that. All right? So anyway, I thought Cornelius' question tonight was uh, an excellent one and one that would be useful for us to kind of expand upon here tonight. So does all that make sense or did I just confuse things and should have let that go from the beginning? All right. Anyway, so yeah, you can spend hours chasing these things down and have some fun with that. All right, anything else? Or you're ready for Philippians 1.1, aren't you? We got another question over here. All right, let's cross the aisle. We'll go to the right wing. Hmm? Deesis is D-E-E-S-I-S. Short E, long E. D-E-E-S-I-S. Yes, sir. Uh, This is more of a clarification than a question um, about Deuteronomy 31, 22. Okay. Where um, Moses wrote down the words of the song and taught it to the Israelites. So the Uh question is, or the clarification is, is that the song, is Deuteronomy 32 the song or is Psalm 90 the song that Moses wrote there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Deuteronomy 32 Um, although it is an excellent question because uh, he is the author of Psalm 90 and so that could be, but I think the close proximity here of of that verse with this chapter um, it's just natural to to take this as that All right. well if I didn't get to your question then uh, we'll try to get to it next week if you can't wait till next week then uh, Shoot me an email in the meantime. All right, let's open up our Philippian study. And take a look at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace. All right what we're dealing with. First of all, let's kind of uh, chart the chapter out and show you the different sections that we're breaking it down into. Philippians opens with a standard yet significant salutation, and we'll spend a good amount of time in the salutation. Philippians opens with a standard yet significant salutation. Every letter has a salutation. Paul especially follows the formula. We're very accustomed to it. Uh, yet this one has a significance that we want to spend time with. Um, avoiding Paul's own apostolic office, he does not mention himself as an apostle here, yet spotlighting the overseer and deacon offices of every local church. And so this is what we're looking at here in verses 1 and 2. We're going to spend the time in 1 and 2, and of course, grace to you in peace, the standard benediction that Paul will open most of his letters with. Um, So Paul opens with a standard yet significant salutation, avoiding Paul's own apostolic office, yet spotlighting the overseer and deacon offices of every local church. We have overseers and deacons here at Austin Bible Church, and this is the the model that we have in uh, the New Testament. All right? The three remaining sections of chapter 1 can be titled with marvelous memory verses. And I understand uh, there's several folks that are working on memorizing the book of Philippians or memorizing uh, Philippians' greatest hits uh, some of the the uh, popular uh, Bible verses within the uh, the book. So uh, we're going to handle uh, verses three through eleven as a unit, verses twelve through eighteen as a unit, and then verses nineteen through thirty. And so there will be a total, really, a total of four developments in this chapter. The uh, salutation will have its own uh, development in verses one and two, and then verses three through eleven, verses twelve through eighteen, and verses nineteen through thirty. In verses 3 through 11, we have what's usually referred to as the thanksgiving and prayer section. And this is common in Paul's writings. 
uh, other than perhaps Corinthians. Uh, in most of Paul's correspondence, he opens with a greeting and then he says why he's thankful uh, for them. All right, uh, He's thankful for the Thessalonians, he's thankful for the Galatians, he's thankful for the, the uh, Philippians. He's thankful in most of his letters. All right, um, And so it's usually a, a characteristic of a very early portion of Paul's uh, letter, and more than Paul, a, a typical a letter in in the ancient world uh, would have a salutation followed by a thanksgiving and prayer section. And uh, this is verses 3 through 11. And it centers on the Bible verse, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that marvelous truth is one that we're going to spend some time with to understand our beginning and our follow through and our strong finish. To understand how it is that that uh, the beginning, I think we get we get uh, complacent, we get very well pleased if something has a good start, and then we start to rest on our laurels and we don't follow through and we don't build on that foundation. And uh, remember, the crown is not awarded to who had the best start out of the starting block; the uh, the crown is awarded to who finishes the finish line, and uh, in uh, in the particular race that uh, that you're called to run. So uh, we'll center on that. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And we'll develop it, I think, as it's normally developed, perhaps, um, on an individual basis. But really, what we have to do is come back and look at this text and how this text presents it on a corporate basis, as a local church. In other words, is he talking about individuals here or is he talking about the local church? See, and I think the you in this, he who began a good work in you, is actually with reference to the flock, to the congregation. And so in speaking about the saints and, and overseers and elders or and, uh, and deacons uh, of Philippi, that he who began a good work in them is going to complete it. And so we'll talk about that, how we have individual destinies, but we also have a corporate destiny as a local church. And uh, And these things get, I think they get very... Uh, pointed very quickly, right? In uh, particularly, and we might even think about our role here as a training ministry, our role with men in training. And uh, you know, you think about Pastor Cliff and Pastor Dan and B three and whomever else, right? Do we just stop there and say, "Well, that's good enough," or do we say, "Wait a minute, he who began a good work in you didn't need to use us, but he chose to use us, and we've." been blessed to stay uh, obedient and, uh, and, and available and willing, right? And, uh, uh, but are we done? Can we say we're done? What if he keeps bringing us more students, right? Well, he will complete it. He will perfect it. And if we've begun a good work, we, uh, we continue to stay faithful in his regard. All right, beyond that, verses 12 through 18, this uh, is often thought of as the occasion for writing section. Common in Paul's writings, common in any letter, really. If you're writing a letter, you typically get around to telling them why you're writing, <laughs> you know, usually. Um, it's a good idea, especially to kind of include that information early. Um, but the occasion for writing section comes here in verses 12 through 18, where he says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And so that's what this section centers on. Centers on my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And here's a powerful paragraph. Because how many Christians do you know um, that, that make their uh, circumstances their excuses for why and why not and, and what they do and what they don't do and what they would want to do but they just can't. And because they just view themselves as victims. No, oh well, you know. And so here's Paul, who if he wanted to could view himself as a victim and say, oh well, I'm in jail, I guess I'm retired. But no, the Word of God's not in prison. And he continues to serve. In fact, his assignment got larger while he was in jail. That it worked out for the further, the greater progress of the gospel. And when you're able to give God the glory for all that He does, including the stuff you don't like, man, does, does ministry just take off? As Joseph told his brothers, you know, you sent me in slavery and you shipped me off to Egypt and you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. And the stuff we don't like, 
if we quit grumbling about it and actually open our eyes to what God's doing, we should thank Him for where He's put us and what He's doing with it. And we, we can recognize that He's actually bearing more fruit in these circumstances than we would have borne otherwise. See? Because He's using us to glorify His Son. And that's how this works. So the greater progress of the gospel. So we're going to learn how to quit grumbling over greater problems and we'll start rejoicing over greater progress for the gospel. <laughs> greater fruit-bearing opportunities. Greater growth opportunities. Finally, the chapter concludes with application both for Paul himself and for the Philippians. He learned it firsthand, but through the teaching here, he wants them to learn it as well, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Verses 19 through 30, and it's, it's really the second half of the chapter and the bulk of the chapter, verses 19 through 30, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And uh, the, the correct doctrinal perspective really sets things uh, uh, in, in a good priority for us. And so we, we don't get humanly disoriented in things, right? Um, I, I think people get all wrapped up over different things and they get all concerned over secular temporal things that aren't even worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. They're not even worthy to be compared to, to uh, the glories of eternity. And if they're not worthy to be compared, why do I allow them to overrule uh, my obedience to the will of God? See, but to live as Christ and to die as gain. What does that mean, to live as Christ? Because I think a lot of people just get all wrapped up about matters of life and death. Ooh, it's a matter of life and death. As if that's the most serious thing they can imagine. All right. Well, all right, maybe it is a matter of life and death, but have you forgotten that to live is Christ? All right, if you're not living for Christ, then might as well die because what, what else are you doing here? And then to die is gain. Don't be afraid of death. Get excited that you've got one final work assignment. It's your finals, right? It's not a midterm, it's a final. It's your final exam. And, uh, and the, the dying grace you get to exhibit and the power that gets to pour into you and uh, in all these things, you know, and who knows what fruit may, may come from it. If, uh, did you see that speech last night? And the, the impact of, of that soldier that died and, and the president when he paid the tribute to him and honored his widow. And you think about it, I believe there was some fruit that was born last night in, in a political speech. That's the kind of thing that uh, can happen. So to live as Christ and to die as gain. And uh, we'll tackle that in the, in the fourth section of, uh, of the chapter because the, the, the prologue is, is number one. Um, the salutation is number one. All right. So for tonight, let's deal with the salutation. Plural. Salutations to saints, overseers, and deacons. Salutations to saints, overseers, and deacons. And you know I tried. I wanted an S word for overseers. I wanted an S word for deacons. I really, really tried. But anyway, the salutations to saints, overseers, and deacons. First thing we study then, the first observation we make. Philippians is one of six Pauline epistles co-authored by Timothy. All right? This is Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy. Uh, how many did Paul write altogether? 13 or 14 if you think he wrote Hebrews. Okay? So 13 in my church. Uh, <laughs> 13 epistles that are clearly Paul's. 14 if you think he wrote Hebrews. And if you're a liberal and don't think he wrote Ephesians or you don't think he wrote the, uh, the pastoral epistles, then it's fewer than that. But uh, whatever the case may be, we're going to go with 13 for the process of this study uh, because either Barnabas or Luke wrote, uh, wrote Hebrews. Uh, so, six out of, but, so six out of 13 are Paul and Timothy. Six out of 13, Paul has his right-hand man, his, his prime uh, deputy, his beloved son, right there at his right hand, and as a co-author. And so the other ones, of course, are 2 Corinthians, but not first. 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, both uh, along with Philemon, all prison epistles, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Now, I put those on there in canonical order. In other words, the New Testament order of the canon. I should have listed those in the written order that we gave last week, 
So in this case, it would be 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, 2 Corinthians, to put that in, in order there. All right? So 2 Corinthians is listed first. It should be listed last. <laughs> As uh, chronologically, it was written after the rest of those. All right. Uh, so Paul and Timothy. Now, there's a lot that we can talk about with respect to a co-author because in, even in the letters where he has co-authors, um, still the bulk of what follows in the rest of the letter is I. I this, I this, I this. I'm coming to you soon. I, I can't believe you've abandoned grace. And, and very little of what follows is actually we, okay? Uh, although there is some, all right? There is some. And when you have a we, uh, it, clearly that includes the co-authors. The co-authors are co-senders. Some people like to use co-senders instead of co-authors. I'm fine with either. Um, but in most of Paul's writings, uh, even when he has co-authors, he uses I far more often than he uses we. And we recognize that. Paul's the apostle. The bulk of this is his. But nevertheless, the contributions that the co-authors made, I think we were wrong to dismiss them. We're wrong to assume that he had no input whatsoever in, uh, in these cases. And uh, I think that the difference of co-authors helps to identify the difference of vocabulary and style in some of the, the other letters. Uh, but some things to think about, though. Subpoint A. Of the seven Pauline epistles Timothy did not co-author, he's actually connected to six of them. And, and this, uh, the more we dwell on this, the more we realize that, that Paul and Timothy were a tandem uh, in, in more ways than, uh, than we usually give credit. So of the seven Pauline epistles Timothy did not co-author, he is connected to six of them. That's why I think studying Paul and Timothy is so useful for us. And that model of the Paul and Timothy ministry training is uh, significant. And that's, that shapes what we do here. Well, you can name these, right? He is the personal recipient for two of them. <laughs> okay, Obviously he's not a co-author of First and Second Timothy because they were written to him. Uh, the, the pastoral epistles have no co-authors. Okay? It's just Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Um, so he's the personal recipient for two of them. Two out of those seven. He is the uh, childhood recipient of another. You ever think about that? We just spent two and a half years studying Galatians. And guess who was a Galatian as a kid growing up? Timothy. In fact, it was in the Galatian region in Acts 16 when Paul uh, found him. We can turn there if you would, Acts 16. Don't need to spend a ton of time on this, but it's worth looking at again. I think he's 10 years old. Oh, he's called a man in verse 3. Uh, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. These are in the Galatian regions that uh, he had visited with Barnabas in chapter 14. And a disciple was there named Timothy. Notice, not just a believer, a disciple. A believer who's abiding in the Word of God. By definition, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and in Iconium. Say, reminds me of when I first met Radley. I think it was 15, 14 or 15. And all the brethren in, in uh, Everett at his home church, my parents' home church, they were all excited about this young man because he just loved Scripture and he loved the Lord. And he was uh, obviously going to be a pastor someday or a missionary or something. And uh, he was well spoken of. And, and uh, can't you take him on your missionary journey or at least take him to Austin. <laughs> and sure enough, when he finished high school, they, they shipped him off to Austin and we've had him here ever since. So Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. And um, Paul wanted this man to go with him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And so then off they go and on to a second missionary journey. And we learn very quickly on that second missionary journey that Timothy is going to play a vital role. He plays a vital role in Philippi that gets mentioned in Philippians. He plays a vital role in Thessalonica that gets mentioned in First and Second Thessalonians. He becomes a co-author 
of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. All right. So as per Acts 16, verses 1 through 3, Timothy is among the Galatian recipients. So uh, he's the personal recipient of two epistles, and he's a childhood recipient of another. He is mentioned in two others. He's not a co-author of Romans or 1 Corinthians, but Paul talks about him in both. In Romans 16, 21, Paul sends a greeting to the believers in Rome from his fellow worker, his soon ergos, his fellow worker, Timothy. Calls him his fellow worker. Also in 1 Corinthians 16, 10, that Timothy is doing the Lord's work as I myself am also. In 1 Corinthians, Paul calls him my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he was hoping to send him to Corinth, but he wasn't sure. Paul's beloved and faithful child in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 4.17. So he's a co-author of six, and of the remaining seven where he's not a co-author, he's connected to six of them. 1 and 2 Timothy, Galatians, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. That's five of the six. Uh, what about Ephesians? You ever think about Ephesians? Ephesians has no explicit references to Timothy, but he pastored in Ephesus for a time and undoubtedly preached from this epistle. Now, I admit, I'll tell you right here tonight, that's an assumption on my part. Um, but if you want to argue with me, uh, you, you're hard-pressed to prove your case. Because <laughs> if I can't prove mine, you can't prove the opposite. Um, but I can speculate. I can speculate based on um, just common sense. Say, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe your name's Dan Craw and you become pastor of a church somewhere like, oh, I don't know, like Corpus Christi Bible Church. And if you arrive at Corpus Christi Bible Church and lo and behold, what do they have there? They have a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Um, would that get your attention? <laughs> okay. Well, okay, in the 21st century, obviously it's a forgery. But um, for, for Timothy, though, for Timothy in 60 A.D., or whatever time period you put the writing of, of uh, 1 Timothy, uh, 62, 64, whenever you, you put the, the writing of 1 Timothy, Paul urged Timothy to remain on at Ephesus and take over that pulpit, take over that, that local church. And can you imagine pastoring a church like Ephesus when Paul has just written a book called Ephesians, <laughs> you know, with all of the depth of Ephesians, including the fullness of time and including prayer and including the armor of God and including everything that Ephesians contains. You know, I can't imagine a pastor taking that church over and ignoring the book of Ephesians. All right, so that's his connection to the sixth of them. The one that there's no connection whatsoever, kind of, mostly, is Titus. Okay. Only in Titus is there no reference to Timothy, no connection to Timothy, not even a hint. Maybe. Um, the only glimmer of a hint might be in. Um, well, I think noteworthy though in, in in Titus is the fact that Paul wants Titus to come to him in Dalmatia, and then in Second Timothy, uh, he points out that Titus has gone to Dalmatia. All right, so there is a follow-up in 2 Timothy of something that is alluded to in, in Titus. Um, plus the fact Titus and Timothy were peers. They were, they were fellow students together. They went to seminary together and, uh, in, at different times and in different places, but it overlapped in some of their times traveling with the Apostle Paul. In any event, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including overseers and deacons. So the tandem of Paul and Timothy is, is, is huge. I think it's huge in every letter where Timothy was a, uh, a co-author. Um, I think we see that Timothy influence in 2 Corinthians, and we're going to see it repeatedly in Philippians. Uh, it's going to come up again in, in Colossians, and it's all throughout First and Second Thessalonians. All right. So point B. Sylvanus was... An, uh, some notes, extra notes here on co-authors. Sylvanus was an additional co-author for two of Paul and Timothy's six epistles. So Timothy is listed on six, and then for two out of those six, there's a third name attached, and that's Sylvanus. 
When you read the introduction to First Timothy, First uh, Thessalonians, and Second Thessalonians, that's what you read. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. And I think that's just an age thing. Sylvanus being older and being a prophet. You have a, an apostle, a prophet, and a pastor, teacher, and they're listed in that order, in uh, gift order and in age order. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1. So Sylvanus is a co-author. Paul didn't use many co-authors. Timothy, Sylvanus, and Sosthenes is it. And Sylvanus only got those two. Okay, Sosthenes only got 1 Corinthians. <coughs> so really, Paul's use of a co-author is, is Timothy six times over. Also, um, I'm not completely convinced that it's the same Sylvanus in 1 Peter 5.12, but if so, if it's the same Sylvanus, then not only is he a co-author of uh, two of Paul's letters, but he's also the scribe. He's the one who took the dictation from Peter to, uh, to write down uh, the, what we call today the book of 1 Peter, that he served the amanuensis function of a scribe as Peter dictated uh, 1 Peter. Uh, somebody named Sylvanus did. If uh, not the same guy, then somebody else with the same name. Thirdly, Sosthenes. Sosthenes is the only other co-author of a Pauline epistle. He is the co-author of 1 Corinthians. It is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church at Corinth. Sosthenes had been a Corinthian. Sosthenes had been the leader of the synagogue before he got saved and before he became a follower of Paul, traveled with Paul as they left Corinth and uh, served with Paul in Ephesus and wrote as a co-author of, uh, of 1 Corinthians uh, back to that troubled city of, uh, of Corinth. So co-authors was not really a big thing for Paul, and yet Timothy scored six of them, <laughs> all right? And uh, Sosthenes in, in 1 Corinthians and Sylvanus for a couple of others. All right. And so, just for the sake of writing them down, Paul wrote solo in six of his 13 epistles. Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, First and Second Timothy, and Titus. Uh, those are the six that have no co-authors. I say he wrote solo. Of course, the Holy Spirit is the one that wrote, and he used Paul as a tool. But just in strictly in human terms, uh, about authors and co-authors here for this slide. Paul wrote solo in six of his 13 epistles. And you might expect the three pastorals, of course, to, to Timothy and to Titus. You wouldn't really expect co-authors there. They were personal exhortations from the older man to the younger man. And very much uh, would have been weird to have a co-author there. But think about the other three, though. Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. What sets them apart? What sets them apart? And if you think about... Um, uh, Pauline theology, if you think about uh, what is revealed in the, the body of Pauline literature, um, Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians is as deep as it gets. I mean, right? We're talking about um, the, uh, uh, a theology textbook for the New Testament. Okay? You know, in terms of legalism versus grace, early in Galatians. In terms of the, the great soteriology and justification of Romans. And then the depths of paterology in the, in the angelic conflict and the, the details of Ephesians. It's, it, to me, it's extraordinary that, um, that, um, that the same author wrote all three of those books. And uh, there you have it with the Apostle Paul. And he did so without co-author. He did so solo. And, and, and we'll discuss this perhaps uh, when we get to Ephesians because Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, those are four prison epistles. Timothy's a co-author for three of them. Why not Ephesians? Why is he not a co-author of Ephesians when he's a co-author for Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon? Okay? It's a why question. It's not always answers. <laughs> um, but um, I think if we pinpoint when it was written, I don't think Timothy was even there anymore. That Timothy had already departed from Macedonia and he was already on assignment and Paul was in hiding when he wrote Ephesians. Paul talks to the Ephesian believers and says, you know, I've heard about your faith. 
<laughs> okay, because he's not free to, to live among them anymore. He's, a, he's in hiding. They're arresting people that are connected to him because they can't find him in that Demetrius riot circumstance and uh, the aspects there. All right, so there's those details. All of that's under main point one. Hard to believe. Um, Philippians is one of six Pauline epistles co-authored by Timothy. <laughs> All right, and then additional subpoints and things related to co-authorship and other co-authors and the non-Timothy co-authored books and things like that. So subpoint A, subpoint B, C, and D. And subpoint A had a one, two, three, four, five. Am I going too quickly? Are you following all this? All right. And then did you notice what I did there? I made the one through five disappear so I could put the B up there. Was that slick? Did you like that? I won't tell you how long it took me to learn how to do that. All right. C and then D. All right. Ready for point two then. He doesn't say Paul and apostle. He says Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Paul cites his slave mindset in three out of 13 salutations. Paul cites his slave mindset in three out of 13 salutations. Romans, Philippians, and Titus, all chapter 1, verse 1 of those three books. Interestingly enough, his apostolic gift is, is cited in nine out of 13. In other words, there's four where he omits it. Philippians is not the only book where he omits it, but it's rare that he does. Usually, he will defend his apostolic office, or at least mention it. So he cites his slave mindset in three out of 13 salutations. And we're going to look at the, the doulos. We're going to understand slavery in the ancient world, slavery in the medieval world, slavery in the modern world. A lot of commentaries get written on slavery. Uh, I think there's a lot of um, caution that, that takes place because of sensitivities and emotions re with, re with relationship to slavery. And, and so we'll handle that. But I want to handle it biblically. I want to handle it accurately in uh, the way that the Scriptures do. So Romans, he calls himself, uh, and by the way, in the other two, in Romans and in Titus, they're both uh, uh, slave and apostle. He combines them. He combines them because the apostolic uh, calling is mentioned in both Romans and Titus. So we read, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That's Romans 1.1, where he is both a slave and an apostle. Same thing with Titus 1.1. He's a slave and an apostle in Titus 1.1. Paul, a bondservant of God. And why does, the, why does it use the term bondservant? Yeah, you know, we'll, we'll discuss this. I think it's a publisher's sensitivity. And I think it's a publisher's oversensitivity. There's no reason why you just can't render this slave every time you see it. All right? But the idea of a bondservant, the, 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 the doulos is a doulos, whether it's called bondservant or it's called slave. And I'll show you that here as well. All right. Bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. So there he is, both a doulos and an apostolos in Romans and in Titus. So Paul will cite his slave mindset. He is a slave. You know, just because we're saved doesn't mean we own ourselves because we didn't buy ourselves. We were slaves to sin as unbelievers. And who were we bought by? Jesus Christ. Actually, God the Father and the price was the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we don't own ourselves. He, he owns us. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. We belong to Him. And that slave mindset, we want to know it for what it is. And we want to accept it in glory for what it is. It's not demeaning. It's not demeaning to be a slave of God. Okay? Uh, it's not demeaning because He does not abuse us or demean us or, or dehumanize us in, uh, in our slavery. 
In fact, our slavery is, is marvelous because it's an imitation of Christ and His slavery. When Christ emptied Himself, we're going to see in Philippians 2, He took the form of a doulos. He took the form of a slave. And He was found in the likeness of sinful man. And so we'll discuss that. And, uh, and in some respects, I think it's useful for us because our modern understanding of slavery is so colored by the American experience and the Civil War and, and then the ugliness of, of, of civil rights and the things that followed after uh, the Civil War. Um, and, and that experience, I think, shapes how we look at a lot of the Scriptures, how we look at slavery in general that was not demeaning and it was not racist and it was not dehumanizing. They were property, yes, but they were human property. And even the, even the Greek philosophers spoke of the humanity of their slaves as humans, not animals. So uh, some of those things I think are worth looking at as well. All right. So again, point two, Paul cites his slave mindset in three out of 13 salutations and his apostolic gift and ministry in nine out of 13 salutations. And uh, so there's the nine. If, and and um, it probably would have been smarter to list the four that weren't. Is it easier to spot four that are missing? Or is it uh, easier to list the nine? Um, but do you notice anything? Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus. Philemon is missing. Philippians is missing, of course. That's our book tonight. The two Thessalonians, right. And so what do the two Thessalonians have in common with Philippians? <laughs> no, no, no. They're Macedonian churches. They're Macedo- Thessalonica is Macedonian, like Philippi is Macedonian. All right. They're Macedonian churches. And so there's a region that has such a tenderness in Paul's thinking, such an intimacy with Paul. If he's writing to a Macedonian church, he does not have to reference his apostolic authority. And then in Philemon, there's a reason why he doesn't. He should, but he chooses not to. Okay? And if he deliberately, and technically he does. Are you familiar with this in Philemon? This is one of those not to mention things. If you mention a not to mention things, you just mentioned it. Right? I mean, he says, um, Philemon verse 8, although I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So in those verses, what he's saying there is he's not going to pull rank, he's not going to claim his apostolic office, he's not going to order Philemon to do what needs to be done. Instead, he's very deliberately not mentioning his apostolic office so that he can appeal to him in love and appeal to him as an older man. And so that's a very deliberate thing, uh, written personally as a personal letter, the only personal letter besides the, the pastoral epistles, right? A personal letter, not to a church, but to a person, to Philemon himself personally. All right. So, six minutes remaining. What is a doulos? Yeah, we can teach doulos in six minutes, of course. Doulos, D O U L O S, doulos. Strong's number is 1401. It's not always obvious. Some confuse it with 1400, but 1401 is the Strong's number there. The 126 New Testament uses. So there's a, the New Testament has a lot to say about doulos, okay? Or douloi is the plural. It's variously rendered slave or bondservant. Uh, on Sunday, we'll read the entry in the uh, TLNT as well as the Lexham Bible Dictionary and get some history for it. I think that will be useful. But let me just bring this up once again because I like it. The color wheels. And uh, we'll go back to Philippians 1.1. Again, I'll make it large enough for us here. All right. Bond servants. Doulos. 
word study. All right. Here's your color wheel. In most of the 126 uses, in fact, in uh, 98 of them, it's just simply rendered slave. Why complicate things? A doulos is a doulos. Okay? As a matter of fact, it's not even a noun. It's an adjective. It's an adjective that became a noun. Okay? And uh, the, uh, the opposite adjective of doulos is eleutheros, is free. So you're either free or you're servile. You're free or you're uh, in servitude. And then the adjective became a noun. We just, the Greeks just started calling them slaves, right? Doulos, douloi. But it was originally an adjective, the opposite of free. And so in 98 uses, uh, it's rendered slave. In uh, 23 uses, it's rendered bondservant. And is there, a, is there a rationalization for that? Will, will the Lockman Foundation kindly send us a, uh, a, a representative of their translation team to explain why in 98 cases, slave was a perfectly good word, and then in these 23 other cases, eh, let's go with bondservant. Or how about... Uh, <laughs> Let's really complicate things because there's four places. Let's combine slave and bondservant together and let's come up with a word called bondslave. All right. Explain that one. And then in one very confusing little verse, Revelation 10, 7, they don't even render it, they just render it servant. Okay. Which is interesting because we got lots of words for servant, including deacons. Deacons are servants. We got diakonoi. We got all kinds of servants, most of which are not enslaved. So what is a slave? Okay. And what is what happens if you have a slave who's not a servant? You might have a slave that's a, a doctor. You might have. I mean, there were Roman slaves that were the Greek physicians became Roman slaves. They weren't servants. They were very professional. They just didn't own themselves, okay? And uh, there's aspects there that we'll have to spend some time with. All right, so that's part of what we'll have to look at as well. If we look up the term servant, we'll see something similar. Of course, we have to get past the Hebrew words, gavid for slave, or nakner for young man, or some of these other terms. We get to the Greek Well, I don't see uh, I don't see doulos. It must be really down in here somewhere in the there it is. That tiny little one there. There's your doulos for your servant vocabulary. But you got your diakonos, there's your deacon term. That's the bulk of that. Or pice, a boy, a child, a servant, an oiketes. Only four uses there. Huperetes, there's others, an assistant, an officer. A mistotas. A mistotas. You, you relate to this one, maybe. A mistotas is a laborer, a worker, somebody who uh, earns wages, a wage earner. Okay? Believe it or not, wage earners had a terrible time in the ancient world. You probably believe it. Why pay a wage earner when you could just use a slave? Okay? So the economy was such that a wage earner has a real tough time with it, as you might imagine. All right, well, we'll do some more on that on on, uh, Sunday, Lord willing, and rapture pending. Oh, no, we won't. Pastor Hugh Crowder's in town Sunday morning. So uh, I've given Hugh Crowder the 930 hour. You want to make it to that. He was a a great pastor. He's one of my childhood pastors. Uh, so we will pick this up one week from tonight, next Wednesday night. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this study. And we want to learn about slavery, Father, um, because of the realities that we are slaves. And we need to consider ourselves as slaves and yet free. The marvelous paradox that we have 
that, uh, that, that He has come to set us free. We just studied it in Galatians, Father. We have freedom. We don't use our freedom as a license to sin. We use our freedom as a license to serve one another. And if we truly understand what it means to be a free slave, then uh, I think we'll understand that great paradox of, of a power perfected in weakness. And uh, Father, we will never have a greater freedom than when we fully embrace our slavery to you. And I pray that we would understand this. And so uh, shape our thinking, continue to guide our studies, and, uh, and bless this, uh, this book to this congregation. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.